Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. What do you think, Shane? The uh, Susan Sick and Tammy's uh, on a train to New York. I think it's Scotch time. It's noon. Yeah. It's a tradition when we do the show alone. We have Scotch. That's true. We do have it. We have it, to be fair, when they're here, too. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the When the Cat's Away edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Sitting here in our studio, it's kind of lonely, and only Ben Wittes. Yeah, it's, it's just me. <laughs> half of our half of our uh, cast is uh, mysteriously away. Susan Hennessy has been felled by uh, a sudden illness, drug resistant strain, drug resistant streptococcus, flesh eating virus. I think she just got something from her child or on she, an airplane. She's lying at home. Being eaten away limb by limb, <laughs> but we hope she gets well soon. Yeah, so she but she'll be back, back tomorrow. Uh, and uh, tomorrow is where is your wife? Uh, well, if this is Thursday, it must be New York. She's in New York. Okay, she, maybe on her way to New York. On her way to New York. Okay, so yeah, it is just me and Ben, and we're uh, yeah, we're, we're just sitting here drinking scotch in the studio. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> we can do that when Susan and Tammy aren't here. Oh boy. Well, on a day like today, we may need it, actually. Well, the sun's out, you know. The sun is finally coming out. It not, has been, not in a big way, but... But for the past three weeks we've had in this city, it's felt like Seattle in the fall in yeah. Washington for all of May and late April. And I must say, the best uh, article on the subject was from your alma mater, the Washingtonian. Oh, really? Which produced an explainer on the sun for Washingtonians who hadn't seen it in a long time, which included such important questions as, does the sun really exist? <laughs> when you see the fiery ball in the sky, fear not. Exactly. <laughs> this is a good thing. The plants will come back. Uh, yeah, well, today we may need to be drinking it. We've got a lot to go over. Uh, up on the show today, an Egyptian airplane, an Egyptian air airline has crashed en route from Paris to Cairo immediately sparking fears of terrorism. Hackers are targeting the presidential candidates' campaigns, and the intelligence community may scrutinize the social media accounts of people who are applying for security clearances. Uh, plus, we're going to do something a little bit different this week. We're going to have listener questions. Uh, we're recording the show on, what is this, Thursday morning? It's Thursday uh, and morning. And we have put out a call, Ask Us Anything, uh, since we're here hanging out. Uh, so we'll be answering some of your questions on Twitter as well. By the time you're hearing this, of course, we'll already receive them. Um, but why don't we start with uh, the news of the moment. So uh, as I said, it is Thursday. Um, this morning, early this morning, we got news that an Egyptian, uh, Egypt airplane uh, had gone down uh, not far off the coast of Egypt uh, on route from Paris to Cairo. Um, probably we will know more about the situation by the time the podcast goes up, but already there are concerns that this was a terrorist attack. There has not been a claim of responsibility, as we record this yet, by ISIS, but the head of the FSB, the Russian Domestic Intelligence Service, as well as uh, the aviation minister in Egypt, have come out and said that they believe that terrorism is likely the cause. So 
all right, let's we're speculating here, but let's just say for sake of argument that this, this is this is shown to be uh, in the coming days an ISIS attack, probably not a missile. Let's say it's a bomb that was put under the airplane. Um, does this change everything? <laughs> So first of all, it wouldn't be the first. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be the first involving Egypt Air. Right. Um, and I think there's only two possibilities here. Either it is a terrorist attack or it isn't. Either, uh, either is consistent with Egypt Air's history. Uh, you know, Egypt Air is not the safest airline in the world. Mm -hmm. If you have to get on a plane, um, you know, I guess Malaysian air might be worse, but, um, but so not all their fault. Not, they were not, shot down by the Russians. Right. In, in some case. cases, it wasn't their fault. Yeah. Um, in Egypt air's case, you know, they've had a pilot who crashed a plane on purpose. Right. Off Nantucket. Uh, they've had, um, uh, a recent hijacking, um, yeah. to Cyprus. They've had, a plane go down in Sinai. Um, and well, that was Metrojet, actually. I'm sorry. It was Russian Metrojet. Right. It was it was it was an Egypt of Egypt based flight Correct. out of but, out of an airport in Sinai in Egypt. Yeah. So I, I mean, look, I I think this has some of the hallmark early signs of a terrorist attack, but it's also broadly speaking consistent with, uh, you know. Other, other things that sometimes happen. And I think we're going to have to wait and see. But if it turns out to be ISIS, I actually don't think it changes everything very much because it's exactly the sort of thing we've been expecting ISIS to try to do. Uh, it's a relatively soft target mm -hmm. as aviation goes. That is, this is an airline that recently couldn't prevent a plane from being hijacked and taken to Cyprus. So, um, you know, it's this is not a major U.S. or European air carrier um, of a sort that would be a huge coup for, for ISIS to bring down. Uh, and so I think it probably wouldn't change all that much except for one thing, which is uh, not so much a change as a reinforcement, but over the last, you know, year or two, Europe has gone from feeling like the insulated bystander in the, uh, terrorism world to being the target of overseas planned, uh, major operations. Mm -hmm. And the more often major operations are directed at European targets, and this is a flight coming out of Paris with a number of French people on board, uh, the more I think Europe acculturates itself to the fact that, uh, to, to an environment similar to the one that the U.S. has been dealing with for the last 15 years, which is a sense of itself as always a target of, you know, one or more than one uh, Islamic uh, extremist groups uh, operating out of places other than Europe, yeah. and, and that's a, that. I think is let not not a big change, but it is a reinforcement of uh, of a changed status quo. What I, do you think? I think I would argue that it actually. I wouldn't say it maybe changes everything, but I think I would argue that it changes a lot. And. <clears throat> I agree with everything you just said about you know reinforcing that the Europeans are targets, and clearly the Paris attacks 
woke everyone up to this than the attacks in Brussels and corrected, you know, the narrative, which, frankly, I had ascribed to, that ISIS's ambitions were largely territorial and that they weren't going to seek to do these spectacular attacks in the West. But in this case, you would have, if it were a bomb on the plane, uh, a bomb smuggled onto, you know, a significant national carrier that flew out of a major Western airport, namely Charles de Gaulle in Paris. Um, if the bomb were placed uh, on the plane during a layover someplace else, maybe in a less secure airport, that might, you know, mitigate against, uh, or militate against calling this, you know, a, a game changer. But let's just say it was put on by someone, an insider in Paris at the airport. Yeah, that, That's so, extraordinary. So that would be extraordinary, and that would be game changing. Yeah. Uh, at least as to aviation, right. when people start losing confidence in the safety of European airports. That's a very, very big deal, particularly major aviation hubs in Europe. Right. But that's uh, speculating beyond Correct. even the speculation that this is a ISIS attack. It, that's speculating to the to the point of sort of specific modalities of the right. attack. Right. Um, I think it's... Probably more likely within now now within the realm of completely irresponsible speculation about <laughs> why not? It's noon and we're drinking, right? So look, if you're if if it's a uh, if it's an Egypt Air flight that presumably is coming originally out of Cairo um, to Charles de Gaulle, I mean, it'd be really back. interesting to know where this flight has been over the where this plane has been right, over the right. last several. Uh, a couple of weeks. Um, but I think the soft spot for getting stuff onto a plane, I, you know, De Gaulle is not the softest location that this is, this plane is likely to have been in. Um, so I would, would hesitate at, at that, uh, that assumption. That said, you know, I agree. Look, if, if, if ISIS is able to show within a relatively short period of time that it can kill, you know, dozens or hundreds of people in Paris on any given day, that it can uh, run major operations out of Brussels and bomb things in, in the Brussels airport, and it can get bombs on flights in Paris, uh, then that's a very significant, you know, additional show of force on yeah. the part of the group. And I think I would, I would have to speculate, too, that if this were an American carrier, or possibly even a French or a British carrier, um, <clears throat> you would see tremendous pressure to insert more ground forces into Syria. U.S. forces, I think, to go in, just take ISIS out for good. Right, of course, and that leads you to the essential quality of the European security dilemma, right, which is that they want all the same things in terms of foreign policy mm -hmm. outcomes and military outcomes, but they don't have the kind of investment in, uh, as a percentage of GDP, uh, in their own militaries to do it themselves, and so they rely on the United States to do it for them. And so the, when it's a U.S. carrot, when it, when this happens to the U.S., the question is, what should we do? Right. Uh, in, in Syria or Iraq. And when this happens to France, the question is, what should the United States do in, in Syria, Syria Iraq. or Iraq? It's never what substantially more should France do, right. um, in Syria or Iraq. Right. right. 
Um, okay, let's move on to the next uh, story. Uh, Jim Clapper, the director of national intelligence, made some news on Wednesday uh, when he said that there were indications that hackers have been targeting the presidential candidates' campaigns. I don't think he actually said Trump or Clinton, but considering there really are only two presidential campaigns right now. Uh, well, that's not true. Bernie Sanders is also still in the race. Um, this got some attention, uh, which has, of course, been eclipsed a bit by the Egypt, Egypt air crash. But I have to say it struck me as not remotely surprising. Um, I would be shocked if hackers were not targeting the campaigns of the presidential candidates. Um, Barack Obama in 2008 and John McCain were targeted. That's been known for a long time. Mitt Romney was targeted as well. Um, it just seems like this is espionage in the year 2016. And particularly <clears throat> considering that these candidates are probably fairly soft targets, I doubt that they're using uh, sophisticated encryption or other kinds of protections that they might if they were actually in government. Um, there are probably there are indications and suspicion that Hillary Clinton was already hacked when she was using a private email server. And if you were the Chinese or even maybe the Russians, why wouldn't you want to know what these candidates were thinking and who they were talking to and what their policies might be uh, when they came into office? I, I, none of this struck me as remotely surprising. I, I completely agree with that. And in fact, I think any intelligence service worth anything that was not at least trying to target right. the campaigns would be guilty of malpractice. Um, why, and I, I think the the weird level of shock, at, 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 or maybe it's a feigned level of shock, but, um, you know, these are outfits that by and large have to do a huge amount of public outreach, which means mm-hmm. they're, you know, not, um, they're not, Taking pains to secure their, their their communications, I'm not sure it's a problem actually that they're being spied upon by foreign countries. They they're not generally speaking, with the caveat that the campaign that that the candidate gets certain classified briefings that presumably they then don't write about on non-classified right. systems. Right. There's nothing especially sensitive about what the campaigns are are thinking about and exactly. doing. These are not intelligence uh, operations. Um, certainly, we know from the Snowden revelations that when Angela Merkel was a candidate, i.e. the head of the opposition, uh, the NSA targeted her. So it's not like it's not something we would do. Uh, and I, I'm a little bit mystified by anybody's sense that it's a big deal. Of course, foreign intelligence services are targeting our, our candidates. If they weren't, you'd be interested in what these countries bother to have foreign intelligence services for in the first place. And particularly if you're, uh, one of a number of foreign countries, I would think you'd be interested uh, in the personalities of these two candidates in very different ways. So in, in Hillary Clinton's case, you'd be really interested in the question of what is she likely to be that's different from the incumbent administration as affects our country. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, you know, there are these areas where Hillary is understood to be more, you know, hawkish than Obama. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, say, the Iranians or the Russians or, you know, the Chinese, you'd want to know, um, 
is the tenor of that reasonably accurate? And is the conversations within her campaign going to reflect, um, you know, does it reflect something that we're going to have to adjust to when, when the leadership changes? With Trump, I mean, it would be total malpractice of an intelligence agency not to target the Trump campaign. Precisely. Nobody knows what this guy represents. Exactly. Nobody you don't know knows what he, really, what he really means, what he really says. And, and does is or Donald thinks, yeah. right? Is 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 he a crazy person? Is he a loose cannon? Is he an actor who actually has some coherent views, but who's uh, you know? says what he wants for dramatic effect? Is it some combination of the two? If you're a foreign government, you need to advise your leadership as to the possibility of having to deal with this person. Right. And and I mm. that's what intelligence is for. And I would be stunned and somewhat scandalized if they weren't uh, targeting our campaigns. And by the way, that's why... That doesn't mean the activities in question are legal uh, under domestic law or that we shouldn't prosecute people if we find them attacking computer systems. Sure. But we shouldn't be remotely surprised that that's what intelligence agencies are doing. And by the way, I would hope very much that that's what we're doing uh, in countries that, you know, have a lot at stake in 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 elections that they may be going through. Right. And I think it's important to emphasize, too, what you said at the beginning, which is that it's not as if there is really classified or sensitive information being exchanged in these emails in terms of a national security interest, unless you know, one of the candidates is revealing things they got in a briefing. When they get these briefings, they're going to be given in a secure facility, in a skiff. They're not going to be allowed to take anything out with them. You know, the CIA is not going to be sending a daily briefing you know, via email to these people, <clears throat> where I would be worried, I think, potentially, if I were one of these candidates, is, you know, let's say that a foreign government had a preference towards which one of these people it would like to see elected, uh, and it's been monitoring all of your various loose talk or uh, whatever dirty tricks you may be up to in your campaign, and then decides to expose that information by, let's say, giving it to a reporter, maybe not even in the United States. To the extent that they can see into what the campaigns are up to, and might have something that would embarrass them and then potentially affect the outcome of an election. It sounds a little bit conspiratorial, but if I were working a campaign, I would be very concerned about this. And I would hope that, you know, the campaign managers in these in, the, in these groups are exercising some discipline about what is said you know, over these channels. I don't think the information could ever be FOIA because these are private campaigns. But God, I mean, how many... I mean, how many, you know, a former Clinton advisor, Sidney Blumenthal, was hacked. It's one of the ways that we found out about her private email server. Those kinds of things are real risks. And I would just imagine that a campaign today would have to assume that anything that's being said over its email is uh, something that any number of governments or curious people or hackers are trying to get their hands on and possibly expose. Right. I think that's exactly right. And the question of what the level of cybersecurity risk that campaigns should think of themselves as having uh, is a perfectly legitimate question. And the question similarly of whether um, what what the right degree of precautions for a campaign to take, how how inconvenient should you make the work of doing a campaign 
um, in order to prevent seepage of material, both to domestic actors who may not have, you know, the best interests of the campaign in mind and may be willing to violate the law in order to screw with the campaign, but also uh, foreign actors. Now, I mean, most of what a campaign does is the organization of the campaign, you know, getting getting flyers to this yeah. particular location, making sure this advertisement is... And I, I think any time that quality time that foreign intelligence agencies spend on that stuff is, you know, really uninteresting yeah, from a national security. Yeah. It's a real waste of their time, and it's great if they want to spend their time looking at that stuff. The only thing that goes on in a campaign that I think is of genuine concern from a national security point of view that a foreign intelligence agency may get uh, is those briefings. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not really a campaign problem. That's the government's problem, the agency's problem in figuring out ways to deliver those briefings to the candidate without implicating a larger campaign staff. I have no doubt that that's actually happening, that, that that the agency is careful about that and doing these things in skiffs in appropriate fashions, but that would alarm me if that were not happening yeah. and if you know if that stuff were sort of casually being emailed around campaigns. I hope nobody hacks Donald Trump's Twitter account because it's too good on its own. No one, I mean, no one could really. You couldn't possibly say anything more remarkable than the man can say himself. You know, every time or incriminating or embarrassing. Every time I hear of uh, the Donald Trump Twitter account, I'm always I always have to check and verify that it's not a spoof account. Yeah, I there, mean, exactly. There have been times where I really wondered. I love Hispanics. <laughs> the Taco Bowl. I love Taco Bowl. The Taco Bowl thing. That was. I mean. <laughs> Like, if the FSB had been controlling his yes. account, they could not have made up a more preposterous... Yeah. Um, that, that, that I really I really believed for a moment that it had been hacked or what was going around in sort of screen grabs was actually something that had been doctored. But no, that was the real deal. Yeah. That was the full taco bowl. Amazing. Okay. Uh, all right. Speaking of intelligence and Twitter, uh, the intelligence community has now said that they may begin scrutinizing the social media accounts of people who are applying for security clearances or are trying to renew their clearances. Um, some important caveats in this. One, uh, you will not be required to divulge the password to your social media account. So the intelligence community could only, or their, their uh, agents, uh, could only look at tweets or Facebook posts or Instagram posts that are public. They, they, they can't get into your account or make, make you divulge private information. Um, and they can't, absent a legitimate law enforcement or security concern, follow up on, you know, something they might find that somebody else said that was, you know, potentially incriminating in your Twitter feed. Um, this, you know, this, this got a little bit of pushback, I feel like, but generally speaking, again, this is one too where I was sort of puzzled to think, like, we're not doing that already? Like, this is not a, a public source of information that people who are, doing security clearance applications and renewals are going through. And then I corrected myself and thought, you know, oh, of course they're not going through them because, I mean, you've probably been interviewed by, you know, a government representative for somebody who's getting a clearance and they come and talk to you. 
uh, about them. The questions are pretty ridiculous, right? They're, have you ever had any reason to believe that he harbors resentment or ill will to the United States government? Do you have any reason to believe he's ever tried to overthrow the United States government? They're not terribly probing questions. Correct. And so I guess I'm really, you know, maybe not all that surprised to find out that somebody's not also, you know, just taking the step to go through the guy's Facebook page, you know, to make sure that there's not pictures of him, like, you know, hanging out with Chinese military officials or something in Beijing. Uh, and, you know, and we've heard countless stories of security clearance processes being basically perfunctory and pro forma and really not all that probing. Um, so I don't know if this is really going to be a game changer or if this is just more to clarify that, you know, and maybe even encourage investigators to actually make use of what is, seems to me, undeniably a pretty useful resource for finding out uh, things that people are up to in their private life and, you know, things that they think are actually private but are actually remarkably public. I mean, so I, I think that there's at least three and maybe more than three distinct categories of social media stuff that I would feel, I, I think, different levels of concern about the government going into. So the the least troubling example would be stuff that you've posted on your public social media. Mm -hmm. So so my Twitter feed is public. Um, that means anybody can look at it. And I don't see why a, somebody who is uh, investigating me for a security clearance should be disadvantaged relative to the general public in looking at my Twitter feed. Similarly, some of my Facebook posts are public. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't see why somebody can't look at my, the, that part of my Facebook page that I choose to make pub available to the general public. That strikes me as a no-brainer. It's if I publish an op-ed in the Washington Post, that's fair game to look at. Why is it different if I publish something and designate it as public on right. Facebook? But there is, and similarly, conversely, there's the stuff that you can only access um, on Facebook with my password. Mm -hmm. uh, so all that stuff that I designate as private, uh, let your imaginations run wild, all those crazy nude pictures of myself that I'm posting on Facebook, but designating as just for me, right? So you can't access... So selfish with your posts, Dan. I, I mean, I should be making it available to the public, but <laughs> I'm not. Um, Are you a taker? And so... <laughs> You know, I think that stuff, the stuff that's in your Google Drive, the stuff that's, you know, that, that you've kind of is cloud-based, but you've designated as only for you, that stuff, it would be outrageous if, you know, and, I, and, and presumably a violation of law and the Fourth Amendment for the government to be, you know, accessing for purposes with or maybe, you know, for purposes of a... Uh, background check. Well, but, unless you gave it to them voluntarily. And wasn't this the case in Maryland where there were employers who were demanding passwords to social media accounts so they could go look at the private Well, stuff? so, okay, th but that that's different if they ask for it and you give and it, you to, give it them. to them. I, I mean, I, I I would still have a problem with that, to Well, be making honest. it a vacation condition of employment is e also problematic. Exactly. Yeah. But the, what about this intermediate stuff, mm -hmm. which is the people who have private Facebook feeds that are, you know, they get to decide who, no, private Twitter feeds, you know, they get to decide who's allowed to follow them. Um, 
the people when I my Facebook settings allow me to share stuff with you know close friends but not the general public and I'm pretty careful on my Facebook feed about deciding which of the people I'm friends with gets to see what yeah, yeah. Um, and so what about stuff that isn't public but not that I'm not keeping private either that's available to some significant group of people but I didn't designate the FBI as one of those people and I would expect of the people who are in that list that they're not turning that material over to everybody who comes saying hey you know who is Benjamin Whittes right. uh, and so I think there is an intermediate space there that's actually a little bit difficult um, yeah well I think that this is also it's just it's it's Again, I mean, I, I was sort of unsurprised by this, but what'll be interesting to see is whether anyone gets a clearance denied based on something that was deemed inappropriate or offensive or risky in a social media setting, which is frequently kind of devoid of context. Right, and I, I think there's also a, a really interesting question here about in an environment in which we're all documenting large swaths of our lives, uh, using social media and presumably to the extent that we become intelligence targets other p other entities are capturing large swaths of our lives through that means uh for purposes of you know recruitment blackmail extortion you know um you know what's the interest in our employing agencies in having a certain amount of background knowledge about what your degree of vulnerability right. in that area is. Right. And I think it's not it's not unreasonable for them to say, okay, the FSB is going to look very closely at Shane Harris's Facebook page to figure out everything they can about how to approach him for defensive reasons. We have to have a sense of that as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think instead of object lessons, it's now time for listener questions. Um, I've got two. You have one? I've got, uh, th there are, uh, several on right. the Rational Security feed. Okay. What well, gives our first question? Ben. Well, so our first question comes from at Scotian Blue. Uh, and it says, early 2016 episode, Rational Security panel comments, uh, and says he's paraphrasing Susan Hennessy here. Or me. I, I defer to security state domestic spying based on the belief that rational, mature people will always be in power. Um, can we revisit in light of the nomination of Donald Trump? Susan definitely said that because I don't think I ever defer to security state. Yeah, so I, I actually, first of <laughs> all, want, I, did. I doubt it. First of all, I want to say that I don't think that's quite what Susan said. I doubt it too. And I think what, what Susan said is that, that she is, uh, it just says SH, by the way. That's why we're confused. Go ahead. Right. I, I think what Susan said, and I'd be interesting to go back to her actual words, but I think what she said is that, you know, she's, as a former NSA person, uh, she operated in an environment in which uh, the people who were running the government were people, you know, political agreement or disagreement aside, she had some confidence we're going to follow, you know, the law and the rule of law. And that therefore the these elaborate restrictions on NSA would actually mean something for the professionals there. And 
uh, would be respected by the political leadership and that the Trump campaign makes you wonder if that premise is right. And so speaking personally, I, I mean, I would say I think you, I, I think it would cause me uh, a serious set of anxieties about whether the, you know, whether, whether the rules that we had set and crafted and enforced and carefully designed uh, were adequate. Um, I would still say that you design the rules that, that you think a democratic society needs to live with, but I would be very interested in having those rules monitored very, very carefully uh, in inverse proportion to my trust of the individuals in question. And I think certainly Donald Trump, who has talked about uh, committing war crimes, who's talked about uh, various things that I would consider abuses of power, uh, I would would want those systems to be very robust in order to to take care that those things were not happening. And you know, the scary part is that these are very very powerful tools, uh, and certainly a Trump presidency would make me think very hard about whether the checks and balances that we've put in place are or are not adequate. I don't know that I would change them in anticipation of a Trump presidency. But I would certainly uh, want to see the actors that we've empowered in these settings to do oversight to take those responsibilities extremely seriously. I don't know. What do you think, Shane? Well, this actually kind of leads in well to a second question here, um, which is related. Maybe I'll take an answer, answer this and try to answer the first one, too. This is from Atherton KD who says, uh, I've heard talk that government agencies would treat Trump as damage and route around him. One, possible. Two, don't they do this anyway? There's a series of tweets here. Can a government agency limit a president's ability to control it if they feel the president is running counter to their purpose? Or in other words, how much of American foreign policy is executed through deep state versus how much by the administration itself? For a specific example, a president wants to deploy a tactical nuke to CENTCOM. Could state or DOD, what could they do to discourage that? Um, I'm inclined to say that the president in many of these areas could probably do whatever the hell that he wants. Um, And that the... You know, if we imagine a, a, a Donald Trump presidency in which he has, you know, sort of husbanded all of these executive authorities and resources and is inclined to use them unilaterally, this is probably an administration in which there aren't that many people with access to the president to try to dissuade him to do otherwise. And you could imagine him building up kind of the apparatus around him in the White House as maybe even being something that deliberately tries to exclude those forces, if we're taking this kind of extreme example. But if a president, you know, wanted to order a tactical nuclear strike, I mean, I think as, you know, as, as Donald Trump has not ruled out, um, you know, I, I could imagine, I don't know that I could imagine officials trying to prevent him from doing that. I could definitely imagine people going public and possibly going public right away to expose what was going on, resigning immediately, going to the press and saying these are the kinds of things that Donald Trump is doing and then seeing if there was a pressure that could be brought to bear uh, to force him to stop, whether it was through the publicity or through impeachment. Um, you know, but I, I just I think there are things that happen in the Bush administration that people before 
never would have imagined being possible. And they were clearly possible. Uh, and you had people who understood how to use the levers of power and the various channels of bureaucracy to get done what they wanted to get done, which many people found abominable. Uh, I don't know why Donald Trump would find it any more difficult uh, to ha have his way if he was just prepared to say, I'm the president, and because I say so, we're doing it. I just don't know that he would get away with it privately. Right. So I, I think that I have a somewhat different answer to that question, which is that, um, you know, so Katie Atherton, a Atherton KD, uh, otherwise known as the estimable Kelsey Atherton, uh, follows up uh, asking, in other words, how much of American foreign policy is executed through the deep state versus how much by an administration itself? And I think this is a really interesting question in light of the f Trump phenomenon. Um, so, and I think the answer is at the you know, a lot of it is a creature of the administration. But there is the point at which the deep state gets to say no. And that point has to do with the perception of legality. Mm -hmm. um, there are all these levers where people do not have to and will not uh, or may not follow orders they believe to be unlawful. In fact, a required many cases not follow an order that's unlawful. Correct. And and so you're already seeing that with respect to Trump um, when people like General Hayden predict openly that if Trump tries to do some of the things he's talking about, the military will simply refuse to follow right. the orders. Right. Um, and you know, that's a remarkable thing for a former general and former CIA director to say publicly. Um, you know, about a presidential candidate that what he's talking about is, is illegal. And this is, you know, a former CIA director who supervised some, some of the very things that you're describing, Shane, when you talk about, you know, things in the Bush administration that people really didn't like. And, you know, the thing about Trump is that he actually doesn't care at all about legality. Uh, the Bush administration cared a great deal about legality. They spent a lot of time, rightly or wrongly, trying to justify the things they wanted to do in terms of the law. And the importance of that was not necessarily that, pe that they were right, um, but that it gave people cover. And if you don't give people cover, if you say, if you just say, we're going to bomb the shit out of them, or we're going to torture, you know, we're going to go after their families, or we're going to do things way worse than waterboarding, um, you actually give people no cover to come along with you without a perception that they're violating the law. And that's the point at which the deep state really does get to say, no, 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 we're not, you know, this is not uh, something that we're interested in. Now, one other thought on this, you know, the national security establishment is the least partisan part of the U.S. federal government, mm -hmm. the least partisan part of sort of Washington. And, you know, it's not an accident, in my opinion, that it's not lots of Republican, uh, lots of economists who are wringing their hands and saying, what are we going to do about you know, writing letters through War on the Rocks or, or, or whatever, um, that this is coming from national security people about Trump. And the reason it's coming from national security people is that this is an area where the 
bureaucracy and the entrenched groups of people have a relatively strong, relatively nonpartisan sense of the universe of the lawful, moral, and possible. And I think, I think it is reasonable to expect, uh, to be, to come back to Kelsey's question, uh, serious pushback if Trump is A, elected, and B, does not seriously moderate, uh, his, his ambitions. I just don't think the U.S. military is interested in being used that way. And the pushback against the Bush administration on important things is a good example of that, that they really do have the ability to say, uh, you know, we're not, we're not going there. Yeah. And I think just as a final thought on that, that's so important because what we're seeing right now in the run-up to the the uh, conventions in in Cleveland is the Republican political establishment having to come to grips with what seems to be the fact that Donald Trump will be their nominee and kind of having to grin and bear it and go through all these contortions of, well, I'm going to vote for him, but I won't endorse him, which is just absurd. Um you're not seeing that at all in the national security foreign policy realm. There are people who have signed up with him, but you're not seeing this equivocating. There are, there are many more people who have just thrown down the gauntlet and said, no, no way, and I might even dedicate myself to making sure he's not elected. The difference between those two camps, I think, very much illustrates the difference between politics and governing. And when we kind of talk about the members of this deep state, and I agree with you, they're the least partisan in national security and foreign policy circles. Um, we talked in previous episodes about whether that will have any sway in the election or persuade voters one way or another. I would hope that it would, <laughs> that voters actually look at, you know, reasonable people who are taking a position that is not partisan and are saying something truly extraordinary. And that's not to take a position, you know, for one candidate or another, but this is, you know, very different from what we're seeing Republican political officials do of just trying to get themselves to yes. These are people who've said no, no way, no how. And, um, and they're doing it for principle, not for reasons of ideology. So I think we have one more question. Uh, yeah, we have. We have but, but before we go to Phil Walter's question, I want... <laughs> it's a good one. It is a good one. Uh, he has two questions, actually, and we should address them both. We will. <laughs> um, so I, I want to uh, stick with, with Kelsey Atherton for a moment, who has a very specific example that he wants us to address. It says, for a specific example, a president wants to deploy a tactical nuke to CENTCOM. What could state DOD do to discourage that? And I, so I, I'm interested in your response to this, Shane. My response is nuclear weapons are a particularly weird example here because the scariest thing, the second scariest thing in the world is the president who has the unreviewable power to order a nuclear strike on Tehran. The only thing in the world scarier than that is the president who doesn't have that power. Mm -hmm. And so nuclear weapons are this very strange uh, sort of lacuna. Um, that said, I do think CENTCOM does have ways of pushing back. And the, the most significant state has fewer. The most significant of them, uh, it's one to the extent the attack is, you know, would not comport with the laws of war, is to refuse. Uh, the, the other one that's probably a less blunt instrument, but a, but usable, 
is the one Shane alluded to earlier, which is leak it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that would pre precipitate a major both domestic and international crisis. And, uh, you know, the military is good at, at, at doing the things that it needs to do to protect its institutional interests. I don't know. What do you think? What other tools does it have? You know, I suppose there's, there's, there's good old-fashioned slow rolling. Um, I suppose that, you know, you could imagine... Um, wind of this getting out through the National Security Council and the Secretary of State and the DO Secretary of Defense, you know, coming over to the White House and demanding to see the president and pleading with him, don't do this. I don't know if there is, I don't, I don't know, I don't think it's ever been tested, but I don't think that there is a sort of relief of command provision when it comes to the commander in chief. I don't think that there is in the way that there is uh, uh, in, in wartime, or at least in, in movies set in wartime, I'm thinking of, what was the submarine movie with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman? Uh, oh, what was it, it called? Crimson Tide? Yeah, Crimson Tide. So, like, is there, or is it a mutiny on the bounty kind of situation? I don't think that that's there, but you could imagine, I mean, if it were something really dire, you could, I mean, you could imagine, I don't want to use the word coup, but let's just say that the vice president uh, was on the side of this is insane, and contacts the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and says, I am asking you to disregard this order and basically, you know, follow me. I, I mean, I, you know, there it's is a, a bit of a Hollywood scenario. There is a disability provision, in, you know, with respect to the presidency. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, let's, uh, let's go to the next question from, from Phil Walter. This Very is a quick one. Question. Unoriginal, but here it goes at Rat Security. I've heard Benjamin Wittes and Shane Harris speak of scotch. Which scotch? Uh, the answer is in, in our studio, we have Bunnehaben, uh, which is a lovely, uh, uh, single malt. Um, it sounds uh, German. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's that whole Scotch Gaelic thing. Yeah, Bunnehaben. So, Phil Walter also asks, um, what national security websites do you read or Twitter personalities do you follow to stay up on current events? Um, uh, Shane, you want to take that first? Lawfare. Yeah, but what other? <laughs> Which other ones? Uh, you know, I am a big follower of a number of journalists, other journalists uh, who I really love, uh, uh, folks at the New York Times. The New York Times journalists don't tweet as much, although Charlie Savage is a very good tweeter. Charlie Savage is a good Charlie tweeter. Charlie Savage is a very good tweeter. Uh, I, I tend to follow a lot of journalists. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to actually give you... It, it's a funny thing. I, I was, I was looking at this question, trying to think of it. You know, it's sort of a, a go-to on the ones that... I, because my feed is just sort of populated by nothing but uh, of these kinds of experts. So I'm just sort of looking through this right now. Uh, and I see, you know, basically it's just journalists. I know that sounds embarrassing and making it look like I'm in an echo chamber. Um, I do like Real Clear Defense, actually. I think that they do a lot of good aggregation and kind of retweeting. Um, I am a big fan of Lawfare, obviously. Big fan of Just Security. I'm allowed to say that around you, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a fan of Just Security as well. And, and I also follow, frankly, um, Morgan Fairchild's retweets are pretty good. Uh, I like hers a lot, and I, I find that like Twitter is just a very good source of sort of aggregation, and it's kind of like a fire hose. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of—I guess I'm omnivorous when it comes to that. I don't feel like there is just one place above all others that I go to. So unsatisfying answer, Phil, but that's my answer. So a few additions. Uh, War on the Rocks often has great stuff. Terrific. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I also think that the um, there are certain really undervalued national security Twitter uh, personalities. For those of you who have not had the pleasure of following at Al-Qaeda, I strongly urge uh, you to follow at Al-Qaeda, which uh, is a bin Laden um, parody account that um, adopts a, uh, let's just say, flamboyantly gay uh, uh, viewpoint on... um, but on a more serious note, um, there are a few uh, Twitter feeds that I think are, uh, you know, I constantly learn from. Uh, one of them is uh, Kelsey Atherton, who, um, uh, another is Adam Elkis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another is um, Aaron Zellin, who runs the Jihadology site. Uh, he's been on a little bit of a Twitter hiatus recently, uh, as best as I can tell, but his stuff is, is always really, really interesting. Um, you know, there, one of the lovely things about Twitter is that there are these, uh, individuals who, uh, you know, aren't necessarily people whose names you know, who are just very, very high noise to say, signal to noise ratio individuals and, they're really, really worth following. You know, the first of these that I came across in the national security space was the was the at drunken predator feed. Who, oh yeah, um, classic. Who, which um, you know was a joke at some level, but also I learned a lot of, about drones from yeah. from you know clicking on links that drunken predators uh, uh, referred me to. Swift on security, by the way, is another one that's like that. Yep. Who is uh, affecting the personality of Taylor Swift, but is a uh, as a cybersecurity expert, and it's great fun, and it's really good information. Right. Um, we have one more question. All right. Uh, and it's a good one on which to start, which is given actual versus perceived security, and the constant demagoguery in U.S. politics, is long-term security possible? Hmm. What do you think, Shane? Is long-term security possible? I actually got asked this question yesterday by somebody. I was doing a book talk, and she just said, you know, it just seems like we've always been fighting. You know, I, 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 I've been the pessimist on the show before that I've, that I've made the argument that the state of war is the more natural state and that the state of peace is actually the unusual one. Um, <clears throat> you know, but at the, to the specific question that that, that uh, Atso Sterling is asking, given actual and perceived security, the constant demagoguery is long-term security possible? Look, I think that there is a the old adage of politics stops at the water's edge. I don't know if that was ever true. I don't know if that there was ever a time that national security was not politicized. But we are in that moment clearly now and have been for a long time. And I guess I would answer, answer is long-term security possible with another question, which is what do people define as security? And I think that what is safe and what is a nation that is safe and is secure is something that politicians of all stripes are constantly debating and demagoguing um, to either terrify people into voting for them or to make them feel safe into voting for them. Um, but long-term security, look, there have been, you know, gratefully few and not very many big uh, terrorist attacks on U.S. soil since 9-11. I think inarguably we are more secure in that regard. And before, it's not been without trade-offs. But can we find sort of a generally secure 
uh, position in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think we can. I mean, one thing I've thought is that it would be great if our officials just leveled with us more about uh, what, uh, go back to that speech that um, Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson gave maybe a year ago, where he basically said, you know, I can build you a perfectly secure city, but I have to put a wall around it. I can I can guarantee that nobody will blow up an airplane, apropos of today's discussion, but I'm going to basically make you wear surgical gowns and stay in your chair the entire time and not carry any luggage. There's been very little leveling uh, with the American public about risks and trade-offs, and the fact that, you know, we... Uh, or we are not living in a world in which hundreds of people are routinely being blown up and killed, or sorry, in a country, uh, by terrorists. I think in that sense, it is relatively uh, stable, if not completely secure. I also think it's really important to understand security as a spectrum, not a binary. Yeah. You know, a light is either on or off, at least a light without a rheostat. <laughs> security is a light with a rheostat. And it's a, it's something that you have more of or less of mm -hmm. and that you decide how much you're willing to pay to have more rather than less of it in various currencies. And is long-term security possible? I would reformulate the question it, to how much long-term security is possible and what are the costs of getting it? Mm -hmm. um, and the answer is, yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just that it's not going to be free and it's not going to be without, without important trade-offs that, that uh, involving things we might care about. All right. So that's a somewhat hopeful note to end on, uh, Sterling. Thanks for your question. And thanks everyone for your questions. That was a lot of fun. And we will do that again, uh, on a future episode. That brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. And you can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. If you're not already following us on Twitter, you're missing all the fun of this Q&A. So follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. When you download the podcast, please leave comments and a rating. It really helps us out. And we appreciate uh, those of you who've done that. Our, our edit, the show is edited, as always, by Jen Howell. The music was performed this week by Donald Trump and the Real Taco Bowls. Excellent. I like that? Yeah. Real the at real taco. The real taco bowls. Real taco exactly. bowls. Exactly. I like it. No, of course. Our, our, our music was performed this week by Sophia Yan, who um, likes taco bowls, is not Hispanic, though if she were, Donald Trump would love her because... Because... He yeah. loves all of them. He loves all Hispanics. All the Hispanics. In fact, I think next week we should do the I Love Hispanics edition. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Because I, I, too, love all Hispanics. All Hispanics. Yeah, just like Donald Trump. We have so much, see, we have so much in common. We, it's one thing that Donald Trump and I can agree upon, finally. <laughs> but, except uh, that the Taco Bowls at Trump Tower. No. Not, not so great. Yeah. Also, Taco Bowl? Guessing not really an authentic thing. Right. Just gonna throw that out there as a possibility. Taco Bowl, not really. There's no um, but sometimes can be delicious, just not a trip town. Uh, on behalf of my friend Ben Wittes, because it's just us hanging out here. Just us today. I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.